Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Another edition of the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. In Nashville, Tennessee, I'm the professor, Matt Perkins. And a hop, skip, and a jump across the Harpeth River, for, river from me, it's our coach, Corey Burton. Well, you know this. Uh, Perko, we're about to get a lot of rain, so it might be a, a short canoe trip away from you. But uh, we got a good practice session in this week. Uh, we're licking our wounds a little bit after Friday night, but it's okay. My dog's won. Uh, my dog's won in a thriller, actually, so... Um, I'm happy about that. We'll talk more about that later. Um, a certain thing happened in that game that I was surprised in. Um, and God, we got such an action-packed show. I love these recap shows because there's so much to talk about right now. We do have a lot to talk about. And speaking of the rain, we want to – uh, make sure that all of you out there in podcast land are staying safe and dry from Hurricanes Irma and now Jose on the way. Special shout out to uh, one of our listeners in the Keys, Al Gonzalez. Hope that uh, you made it up to Knoxville safely uh, in fleeing the hurricane. But uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't introduce the third amigo in the second city, a man who prefers his literature to be argumentative. It's our intrepid <laughs> blogger from Big Ten and Counting, Josh Cook. Yeah, yeah, that's for the classes I'm teaching this fall. Uh, it went well for two of the periods. Uh, period three, you're about to lose a lot of uh, a lot of privileges if you keep it up. All right. Well, uh, you kids in uh, Mr. Cook's period three argumentative lit class, you're on notice. So anyhow, um, today we'll be taking a look back at the second weekend of college football action from 2017. Um, but we're going to start like we always do with some quick slants. So, uh, Mr. Cook, mm-hmm. you're first on the line. Uh, well, my first quick slant, I just want to read off a cool uh, little drive summary for you. Uh, first and goal at the Mississippi State six-yard line, Mark Scott, no gain. Second and goal, Mississippi's. At, at the Mississippi State six-yard line. Team run for no gain to the Louisiana Tech seven. Team fumbled. You heard that right. Uh, third and goal at the Louisiana Tech seven. Yes, I'm referring to the over 80-yard fumble that Louisiana Tech experienced. It's the longest loss of yardage play in over a decade. And, uh, I mean, th- it was just kind of a funny play, but uh, I think it highlights something else that I wanted to talk about, and that is Mississippi State. This is a team that made a bowl game last year going 5-7. and seven. Expectations kind of low, but they just knocked off the CUSA favorite in pretty convincing fashion and are 2-0 and on the young season. This was a true road game for the Bulldogs. Hats off to them, and also hats off to them for finding a new way to stall a game. If you are up, say, 10 points on – Alabama, make them have a third and goal at their own seven-yard line, wastes a play, and then a punt, kills more time. Really, really ingenious tactic by Dan Mullins. Yeah, uh, well done all around there in Ruston. Uh, Coach, what's your first slant? Well, my first slant, I'm going to take a look at a couple Big 12 teams that make me say, come on, man. 
Um, one of them is the the Rock Chalk Jayhawk. We we you know we lighten up on you for for a couple of weeks. We we don't we don't hammer you. We don't make fun of you with these big lines. Guess what? You go out and you lose to the mighty Chippewas of the MAC Conference. All I got to say is, come on, man. And you lose 45 to 27, so they almost double you up. <laughs> you know, I heard the loss was so bad they're thinking about rebuilding the track. They need to. They need <laughs> to start pissing off those visiting. They need, they need to take the track out because it pisses off visiting teams, and they just come in and, and they pound them. Uh, the other come on, man, um, which is actually I'm kind of, you know, we, we like to try to be unbiased, but let's be honest, we don't have to be. So, um, so hats off to the mighty Roadrunners coming up victorious BB over the Baylor Bears. Um, BU, you should you should take your logo and you should make it you should make it lowercase. That's about how you're playing right now, which I'm I'm cool with that. So they they lost yet again to a to a much inferior opponent. Um, I'm starting to believe that they're not. The opponent they the opponents they keep losing to aren't inferior, which with with everything that's gone down at Baylor University makes me happy. Um, also, uh, poor East Carolina, our adopted Group of Five team, the, the Purple Pirates are just they took another one on the chin at the hands of West Virginia. And hats off to Tom Herman and getting his first win in convincing fashion, fifty six to zero, um, and so. Uh, Pretty good, pretty good, uh, pretty good day all around. If you are Texas and West Virginia, um, I guess things are heading south for Baylor. Things are heading south for Kansas again. So uh, that's my first slam. All right. Well, um, you know, it was uh, an interesting week in the Big Twelve. We'd be talking about the biggest victory a little bit later. But for my first slant, um, I just I have a quick bone to pick with Bert Bielema. <laughs> On Saturday, Arkansas hosted TCU in a rematch of what was, quite frankly, one of the best games from last season. Uh, if you guys remember, mm-hmm. Arkansas won 41-38 to overtime. Fantastic game, back and forth, back and forth. I was really looking forward to this rematch. The Badger game had just ended. It was on that you know 2.30 central slot, and I was pumped up and ready to go. Uh, a couple minutes into the game, you know, uh, you know, TCU gets up, quick touchdown, and then uh, Arkansas comes back and has a quick score to tie it up. But if you remember from last year's game, uh, one of the reasons that TCU ended up losing was because of their fabulous or infamous quarterback, Kenny Trill Hill, decided to do a throat slash celebration after scoring a touchdown, which in turn obviously gave him an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty, uh, knocking the kickoff back 15 yards, setting up a huge return that allowed Arkansas to tie the game. So uh, what does Arkansas wide receiver Jonathan Nance do after scoring a big 49-yard touchdown to tie the game up early against TCU? A throat slash. Now, (laughs) everyone who knows anything about celebrations knows that the throat slash, along with finger guns, are the two absolute, you cannot do these things. You cannot do these things under any circumstance. Tell that to Lamar Thomas, too. (laughs) You would especially think that after that penalty was so critical in the game last year between the same two teams that Burt 
you know, would have reminded the guys, hey, don't do anything crazy. Remember what happened to us last year? Nope. Nope. We get the throat, we get the throat slash, and even though he doesn't get penalized, uh, the football gods came back and penalized them because TCU ran away with the rest of the game, scoring 21 and answered to win 28-7. to seven. Uh, Come on, Bert, you're better than that. So, uh, Josh, what's your second slant? Well, mine goes to the Rio Grande rivalry, and despite the name, it's not a rivalry between two Texas teams. It's the rivalry between uh, New Mexico and New Mexico State. Uh, quietly has been chugging along out west. It's been played uh, pretty much every year since 1911. Uh, over 100 matchups between these two teams, dating back to 1894. Uh, the Lobos have the big lead historically, 70 to 33 to 5. But. The last two have gone New Mexico State's way. Uh, it's kind of a nice cherry on top of kind of a rough patch in Aggie football as they are leaving the Sun Belt, heading to Independence, don't really know where they're going. Uh, so well done for the Aggies. But it also produced one of my favorite uh, drive summaries that I really have ever seen and box score. So First of all, box score oddity. New Mexico played two quarterbacks. They both went identically 10 and 19. Uh, one had two interceptions. Uh, the other had two touchdowns. So it was some really nice uh, mirror reflection on what they did. And then the, uh, the scoring summary. Uh, Aggies got on the board first, but messed up on the point after. They, they fumbled the snap. Aggies then got another touchdown, but rather than chase points, they just kicked a point after. So they're going to be on kind of a weird track. They end up with 30 points even. Uh, New Mexico scored in the fourth quarter, uh, went for two points to make it 30 to 12, or excuse me, 30 to 13, get within 17 points. That's logical. They own a two-point conversion. Uh, Then they scored again completed a two-point conversion to get up to 19 points. They hit a field goal to get to within eight, and then they fail a two-point conversion uh, with under 90 seconds left to get to 28 points in one of the weirdest ways. And also, the quarter-by-quarter was really unique. This game was 30-5 to at one point. Lobos had 23 points in the fourth quarter as their rally came up, just two points shy. Uh, Both these teams are playing some interesting football. Lobos, we know their vaunted run game. But uh, how about a shout-out to New Mexico State quarterback Tyler Rogers? Here's a day for you, gentlemen. 34 of 57, 401 yards, an Abraham Lincoln four-score touchdown day, and one pick as he shredded this Lobo defense. Uh, Well done, Aggies. All right. Well done indeed. Coach, what's your second slant there? Well, um, I'm not going to be positive about the Aggies, but uh, it's a different set of Aggies. I want to take a I want to take you around the SEC some of the scores this this week. All right, you had Clemson uh, beating Auburn 14 to six. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Georgia squeaking over Notre Dame. We'll talk about that later too. All right, you got Bama Fresno State 41 to 10, LSU Chattanooga 45 to 10, TCU Arkansas 28 to seven. All right. TCU one, 
Uh, Tennessee over Indiana State, 42-7. Ole Miss versus UT Martin, 45-23. Vandy over Alabama A&M, 42-0. You have Mississippi State, Bulldog on Bulldog crime here, 57-21. Texas A&M, 24. Nickel State, 14. They had to score a go-ahead touchdown late in the game to, to beat the mighty – Whatever they are, Nickel State. I think they might be the Colonels. I think they're the Colonels. There's something with a, with a saber. But I, let's 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 get one thing straight here. I don't think any more SEC teams are knocking down the door to play Nickel State. This is the second year in a row that they have been almost a giant killer, and they about did it to Georgia last year. Georgia squeaked away with a two point win over Nickel State a year ago. Now they're doing the same thing to Sumlin. You have to you have to believe that seat is red hot now. You you blow a thirty eight point lead a week ago, then you come by and squeak by Nickel State. Come on, man! You know, maybe fool me once, shame on me. You know, but this is starting to become a trend now. I I, I don't know what's going on down there in Texas A and M. That's going to be the first job that's going to open up. Also, Missouri. In uh, the only conference matchup of the, of the weekend, they lose 31-13 to South Carolina. South Carolina might be the real deal. Debo Samuel takes it, takes a kickoff to the house. Um, it was so bad in, in uh, Columbus, Missouri, that they fired their defensive coordinator after the game. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. You know, uh, so, I've got a question for the two of you thinking yeah. about South Carolina and seeing Muschamp get them to a bowl game last year. Their offense is improving. South Carolina seems to turn around. Does that add to the pressure on McIlwain? Absolutely it does. I mean, it, it really does. I mean, McIlwain has got to, to win the SEC East again. I mean, with, with everything that he's going through down there, with the, you know, 10 people getting suspended and all kind of, you know, he, he's got to. He's got to find some sort of spark on offense, and it just doesn't look like he's going to. Yeah, well, I mean, the best quarterback to play for him now suits up for West Virginia. Absolutely. So that that doesn't really help things no. um, in, in, in that case. But, all right, so for my, my final slant is um, – my, my final slant uh, comes – stems from an email I got from my dad. Uh, uh, and he asked me uh, – he, he posed a question, Matt, who had a worse weekend, Syracuse or Rutgers? And so for those of you who were not tuned in to some of that great low-level Power 5 action this weekend, let's face it, you didn't miss a whole lot. Syracuse lost at home to Middle Tennessee State 30-23, and a favored Rutgers squad lost Go at Blue home. Raiders. Yeah, uh, and a favored Rutgers squad lost at home to Eastern Michigan 16-13. to so for the Orange, uh, a lot of people were expecting some more strides forward in their second season under Dino Babers, but quarterback Eric Dungy has not made a ton of progress in his second full season under center on the shores of Lake Ontario. The running game is also definitely not uh, what they are expecting it or wanting to be, averaging 3.1 yards per carry as a team for the year, including a pathetic 2.6 yards per carry against the Middle Tennessee State team this past weekend, and it's not exactly like the Blue Raiders are the 85 Bears against the run. 
Um, they're going to finish the season at home against BC in what will likely be uh, the battle for the bottom of the barrel in the ACC Coastal. Is it, do they get a barrel for a trophy? Uh, I, I hope it's filled with grog. <clears throat> Um, but, uh, the Scarlet Knights, on the other hand, um, they're getting a, a respite this weekend when FCS Morgan State comes to town. But after that, quite frankly, they're not going to be favored in any games for the rest of the season. Now, I like Chris Ash a lot, probably more than most college football fans. And I think he actually has a lot of potential to be a good head coach, but let's face it. They're not going to go anywhere without improved quarterback play. And Kyle Bolin is just not cutting it right now. He's completing less than 58% of his passes. He's got two touchdowns and four picks on the season. And they lost to an Eastern Michigan team, which, you know, uh, just last year at the beginning of the season, we were expecting them to be one of the worst teams in the country. Obviously they had, they had a better than expected season last year, but to answer my dad's question, I think that uh, unfortunately for him, his alma mater Rutgers had a worse weekend. MTSU should at least challenge in conference USA, but Eastern is still a rebuilding program in the Mac. And no matter how bad Rutgers is, they're still at least nominally a big 10 team and they should be able to take care of business at home. Uh, But, But at this point, uh, quite frankly, Army is the best team in either New York or New Jersey, and that was confirmed this weekend by their victory over Buffalo in the de facto Empire State Bowl. Um, Even though they... Even though they needed a big fourth quarter comeback to do so, the men of West Point continued to pound the rock to a tune of 322 yards on 66 carries against the Bulls. But by far my favorite moment from this game was the serious chutzpah that Jeff Munkin showed going for a fake punt on fourth and five with two and a half minutes left in the game and converting it. Uh, And that allowed them to run out the clock on the Bulls. That was a, a ballsy move by Munkin, and they are uh, 2-0 on the season and are rolling right ahead. So I think if you had to power rank the teams in the states of New York, New Jersey at this point, you might have to put uh, – I think you have to put Army 1. I think Syracuse still ends up being number 2 um, by a hair over uh, – over Rutgers and Buffalo. Buffalo is still struggling. Um, you know, we're all big, you know, we're, we're all fans of the coaching staff there at Buffalo, but, you know, they're basically building from the ground up in the last couple of years. So still more strides need to be made there. Um, and frankly, uh, Princeton might even challenge Rutgers and Buffalo a little bit if you're talking about best New York and Jersey teams. But um, as it stands right now. How's NJIT? Um, I don't think they have a football team, do they? Well, that's what, unfortunate. What about the mighty uh, fighting Monmouth? Monmouth is, is, is. It's Monmouthai. 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 Um, I have no idea. All I know is that uh, Stony Brook still no good. Oh, damn. Ooh. Throwing the seawolves under the bus. Sorry. What about Princeton? We're leaving out Princeton. I already said and Princeton. Yeah. I already said Princeton might be Princeton's probably pushing Buffalo to be number four. Come on, oh, that's right. Stick with the program. How about UNH? UNH for, for New England area teams. Well, for New England area teams, they had themselves a weekend. They went down. Uh, they went down south and beat Georgia Southern. So get this. I, I know I'm friends with a lot of Georgia Southern alumni. 
They are not happy. They are wanting, <laughs> they are wanting Tyson Summers out right now. <laughs> well, as someone who is uh, friends with a lot of UNH alumni, they are on the opposite. They are elated. They think they've got the best thing happening there since Chip Kelly skipped town. I'm just, they're probably building a statue for that guy. I'm just picturing like casual football fans who are like, oh, like cool college football podcast. That's what they said about the big Alabama games, you know, the big Clemson game, things like that. They're hearing about the Rio Grande rivalry and UNH, baby. Hey, man. Listen, <laughs> and we, New York football. <laughs> listen, man, there is. Who the hell are these guys? <laughs> Uh, we, we do not discriminate here uh, <laughs> under by no race, creed, kind, or conference. So, uh, as you know, there are only two kinds of people I hate: those intolerance of other races and, and the Dutch. Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> and your third period class, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good lord! All right, well let's uh, let's take a quick look at our picks against the spread from this past week. Uh, so this past week, uh, Josh, you rebounded very well, coming off of a one and four performance in the first week. Josh, you went, you flipped the script, went four and one uh, as the only person to nail the Illinois pick. Yes, and uh, the only place you went wrong, you got tripped up, was by Louisiana Tech. Uh, I was the only person who got Mississippi State uh, on that one, but I had the worst week, going two and three. Uh, Coach, you went three and two, had yourself a nice week. And on the season, Coach is leading the way, going seven and three against the spread. Josh, an even 500, five and five. I'm just behind at four and six. So season's still young, still got a long ways to go. But uh, Coach, you're in pole position right now on the picks. I don't know what to credit that to, but uh, we will. Brain. <laughs> I can see the future. Well, um, someone who is. could not see the future. I don't know why the way you said my brain just like was perfect. <laughs> just cracked for you. It's like a grenade. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think Kirk Ferentz must must have thought he was seeing the future this weekend, considering how many points Iowa scored. That usually takes about uh, four and a half weeks for them to score that much. But uh, oh, man, let's hop into some deep roots. Let, let's start with the Cyhawk Trophy because man, that game was fun. I'm gonna I'm gonna excuse myself for a moment from my Nathan Stanley rant, which I will get to at some point. Don't worry. But, oh, uh, I'm looking forward to it, Josh. I'm gonna let you uh, take it away from here. Yeah, I mean, second time in series history, this game went to overtime. Uh, Cyclones won the first overtime matchup. Iowa returned the favor. And uh, let's just say a lot of flaws on both teams still. But, man, both teams showed a lot of heart. And this was such an exciting game. Uh, Iowa had a 76-yard drive. Um, A few drives later, they had a 91-yard drive. Uh, and then their first scoring drive of the second half was a 94-yard drive. It gets them up 21 to 10. You think the game is over. Uh, Iowa State switches some things, makes some fantastic adjustments. They rip off 21 straight points to take a 31-21 lead. Iowa looks dead in the water. And then they reel off their own 92-yard drive, return the favor, get to within three points. Iowa State throws an interception that was, you know, that was not uh, Park's fault. It was just an incredible play by the Iowa defense alignment. But 
the Cyclone defense holds, forces the field goal, so we're all square at 31 points. Uh, Iowa State scores a touchdown, and then Iowa uh, scores a late touchdown uh, under two minutes left on an 89-yard drive. This thing was back and forth. This thing was awesome. And you see the improvement on Iowa State. We see Campbell starting to turn that thing around. Uh, like I said, Jacob Park, the Georgia transfer, I'm sure Coach will have some opinions on Jacob Park uh, in a second. But he played lights out, 347 yards, four touchdowns, and the one just incredible, can't even blame him, interception. Uh, Nathan Stanley on the other side, 333 yards, five touchdowns, zero picks. Uh, he missed a couple deep routes by, like, inches. When that timing gets a pinch better, this is only a second career start. Watch out. Iowa might have their best quarterback in the Ferentz era, which is saying something because they've had some good ones. And uh, Akram Wadley, the running back for Iowa, some early, uh, you know, flashes of putting up some insane numbers this year. He had 118 rushing yards. He's gone over 100 each game now this season and 72 receiving yards, including the 46-yard touchdown to tie the game up. This thing was a barn burner. Like I said, both teams have some flaws, but for entertainment value, wow. Well done. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I never thought Iowa would be, you know, advantage in a a shootout type game, but I mean, Noah Stanley's just so poised in that moment. And you got a, you got a little, you got a touch over a minute and you, you drive your team down and, and score a touchdown, you know, like it's, like it's nothing. And, uh, you know, I watched the highlights. I watched the tail end of the game, and I wanted to watch the highlights to see what happened early in the game. And, I mean, both these quarterbacks. I mean, there's a, there was a offensive lineman dancing in the stands and all <laughs> that stuff. I mean, it, I mean how, how, how much more exciting can you get? He was um, the center on that play. I don't know how he got into the stands that quickly. I know. It's like, it's like was he already over there? Did they play with 10? Um, but, no, I mean, it was such a fun game to watch because it was so back and forth. And it was, uh, you know, both quarterbacks were playing lights out. There wasn't a whole lot of defense being played. And, you know, it was a casual football fan's dream to uh, – Two bitter rivals going at it in a shootout where there's not much defense, you know. And it's like it's like Mexican style boxing, you know. It's just two two middleweights wailing on each other with not much defense. And uh, you know that's how Triple G Gennady Golovkin fights. And you know, he, t- he he likes to tell the world that he fights Mexican style. But you know it's you know it's such a fun game. And you know I'm so jealous that Jacob Park is doing this at, for the Cyclones and not at Georgia where he should be. And what, what like happened that. There? You can't complain, though, Coach. You got Jacob Eason and Brom. <laughs> like, that's so, but, but, they, but they would have overlapped. I don't know. The, the way the class timing would have worked, I, I don't know. It, it would have been, you know, I, I know we got Eason and Fromm, so it's kind of easy to say we're, we're good in the quarterback department. But, yeah. you know, brid, bridging that gap, bridging that gap between uh, Aaron Murray and Jacob Eason would have been would have been been nice to have Jacob Park in there uh, doing it instead of. It, it the, sounded the, like on the telecast that he just had some immaturity at Georgia. He did. For me, he did. Is that he the did. extent of it? Yeah, it is. I mean, he, he was extremely immature, just wouldn't, you know, just wouldn't fall in line and just wouldn't do what, what, what was asked of him. So, you know, it was one of those 
you might want to go ahead and transfer, or if if you don't transfer, we're going to let you go. So it was, it was one of those like resign or be fired type situations. But and it was just immaturity, you know. And he grew up, and I'm I'm glad he's having a good career at Iowa State. I I you know I liked him as a player. I thought he I thought it was could have been a huge asset at Georgia, at least just bridging the gap between Aaron Murray and, and Jacob Beeson. But you know, bygones are bygones. I'm not overly worried about it. We got we got we got a pretty good quarterback problem now, um, with uh, with the two good ones we got, and uh, you know, like I said, this was an exciting game. Uh, Stanley is he's he's a real deal now. Yeah. Well, okay. So Nathan Stanley, Nathan Stanley, <laughs> Josh, do you know Nathan what, Stanley? Do you know what he's yes. from? I do, and I know you're about to go off on a rant, so I will just coach it this way that. Both of his parents are like diehard Iowa fans. Okay, that's cool. Even though he's from Menominee, Wisconsin. he's from Menominee, Wisconsin. <laughs> now, it, a there's not a more uh, Wisconsin-sounding town name than Menominee, besides possibly Oconomowoc. But Nathan Stanley. Now, Gary Anderson. Let's go back a couple years. So uh, we're going we're gonna to go back about three years or so, three and a half years or so. Gary Anderson is at the helm in Madison, or I should say the helm is thrashing him around because he has no idea what he's doing. Anyhow, he's out there looking for quarterback for uh, the high school class of 2000 and uh, was it 2015 or 2016, whatever, uh, 2000, 2016. Uh, and he's got this quarterback in his state named Nathan Stanley. Big kid, 6'4", 215, looks good, has all the measurables, outstanding three-sport athlete. He's Mr. Basketball Wisconsin. He's Mr. Football Wisconsin. He's Mr. Baseball Wisconsin. He can do it all. But what does Gary say? Mm, nah, he's not a dual-threat quarterback, so I'm not interested in him. So we'll we'll, we'll let him go. We'll let him Send him off. Send him off to Iowa. We don't need him. We will sign um, a kid who's barely six feet tall from Arizona. Is never <laughs> going to play a meaningful snap in his life. Um, Gary gets uh, preach. Uh, Gary decides to run out the back door to Oregon State. Paul Chris comes in, says, "Hey, uh, I was recruiting this Nathan Stanley guy to come to Pitt. Let's try to get him to come to Wisconsin now." Well, it's too late. He's been committed to Iowa for almost a year at this point, uh, so he's he's not coming. Nathan Stanley might be the best born, uh, best Wisconsin born quarterback to come up in the last twenty years. He is has absolute prototypical size. He's you know at this point he's about six four two twenty five, and he's got poise. He's got moxie. And if he was the quarterback of this current Wisconsin Badger team and not Alex Hornerbrook, we would be talking about a national title contender. Instead, they've got noodle-armed Hornerbrook who can't get past more than 10 yards downfield without someone yelling pull and shooting a couple shotgun rounds off at it before it uh, lands complete somewhere in the vicinity of uh, the tight ends coach on the sideline. (laughs) I mean, come on. Gary Anderson has been gone from the program for two and a half years at this point, and we are still feeling it. We are still feeling the disaster that he left us in. Good riddance. And guess what? Uh, you're probably going to be gone from Oregon State, too, pretty soon. Because you're I was going to say considering. Like absolute butt. 
I was going to say, considering the butt whoop in Minnesota dropped in Corvallis on Saturday, uh, he might be gone sooner rather than later. Uh, but a great comment, though, on uh, one of the Wisconsin message boards today was saying that, well, at least Gary's still 2-1 and one in his career against Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. So, anyhow, a great win for your Hawkeyes, Josh. Uh, that was such an exciting game. Um, a game that had just as exciting a finish, possibly even more exciting. I hope you all stayed up for this one. Late night on the Palouse. Pack 12 after dark. Oh, my gosh. Uh, there is nothing like it. Uh, Washington State has an absolute furious comeback. 21 points in rapid succession in the fourth to force the overtime after Luke Falk goes down with injury. In comes Tyler Helsinki. First pass, pick six. You're thinking, oh my gosh, this team is absolutely doomed. But no, he circles the wagons like the Buffalo Bills, and that offense just keeps it going. Uh, It doesn't matter that they average only eight-tenths of a yard per carry on the ground. They still threw for 433 yards and three scores, and it was just an absolute thriller. Three overtimes, Washington State finally uh, getting the – the big, uh, the big winner um, in the third overtime, a Tyler Helsinki pass to uh, Jamal Morrow. Uh, nice catch and run, 22 yards for the score and the win. Josh, uh, this was a really great game, one of the great games of the weekend. Yeah, I mean, Helsinki comes in for a change of pace with folks struggling. He throws a couple good passes, but the final play of his – First drive was a pick six. Falk comes back in. Falk gets hurt. Then Helsinki comes back in. That was just a weird, weird thing for Washington State's quarterback, Carousel. But a Spurrier-esque on the Pirates' it, part. Uh, but I got to be wondering, you know, it takes it takes two aspects for a great comeback. I mean, you got to turn it on offensively, but you got to do some really poor coaching decisions and so I got to wonder what Boise State was doing. They get, uh, you know, they give up a touchdown uh, to make it 31-17. Uh, so they're, they're still up two scores with eight minutes to go in the fourth. Uh, this was their drive right there. Incomplete pass, so no time comes off. A run. Uh, a short pass that got them a, a first down, um, and then a sh- run, but then the pick six. And so they call another pass with just under six minutes left. That was confusing because uh, due to injury, Boise State was also playing their backup quarterback. And the other thing that was very weird was Boise State was breaking their huddle and snapping it with like five to ten seconds still on the play clock. So not good clock management there. The pick six makes it 31-24. Again, hey, you know, just run the ball, run some time off. And instead, Boise State goes three and out and only kills a couple minutes, not even, 152. Uh, And then Boise State's defense, hey, they get a stop. They save the day. What happens? Fumble on the punt return. That sets up Wazoo. At the 24, 
with. Well, what's even a fumble on the punt return is that it the ball hit one of the other guys on yeah. the return team. The, the, the return didn't even get his hands on it because the, the, the punt fell and it hit um, it hit one of the other players. But it's just like it gets to the awareness. You know, you're in a tight game. Um, you know, Harrison's won a lot of games for Boise State, but it just seems like the difference between him and Chris Peterson – is the attention to details. And we're starting to see Boise State lose games in ways they shouldn't. I think under Chris Peterson, this is a lock it down, easy win when they were up by 14 with eight minutes to go in the game. And they blew it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I I think you summarized that extremely well, so I'm not going to go into the the other details. But, you know, I I think also – you know, a factor that, that plays into it is, you know, where Chris Peterson, yeah, you're probably right. He probably would have won this game. He probably would have shocked somebody on the road. But, you know, Washington State is also – they've also been a pretty good home team. And Mike Leach, he's going to find some way. His odd bird mind is going to find some way to to get a victory. I mean, you, he probably rushed – you know, barely runs the ball, throws for – you know, 1,200 yards every game and, and, and finds a way to win. And that's, you know, that's that's the good thing about him. He just somehow he just manufactures ways to win. He slings it all over the yard. He stretches you horizontally. Then he stretches you vertically. And then, you know, he's just all over the place. And, you know, if this game doesn't prove that his system is superior uh, above any other quarterback, I don't, I don't know what else to tell you because it's it's plug and play at this point. You know, Luke Falk goes down, and they don't really skip a beat. And that's not anything against Luke Falk, but that's just how dangerous the system is. You know, anybody can beat you. It doesn't matter. I could probably get in there and, and, and run it efficiently. So, you know, if I, if I had a, if I had a year under Mike Leach, it, that's probably how it would go. So, um, I'm excited. Uh, I, I think that was one of those games where. Uh, I was so worn out after the Georgia Notre Dame game, and you know everything that kind of took place on Saturday. It it was it was difficult, but um, it was difficult to stay up, I should say. But I kind of woke up and I was like, "Oh wow, we're we're in overtime. Oh, this is this is exciting!" And then all of a sudden, bam! Like, holy crap, this thing's been going back and forth. So, uh, you know, again, Boise State. Normally, probably would have won that game, but maybe you know, maybe they're kind of starting to fall back to the pack a little bit. Yeah, I mean, when you're you know, when your coach leaves for an upper echelon program and he's replaced by a lieutenant, but someone who doesn't have the, quite the same uh, gravitas, you know, I mean, Rustin's a very good coach in his own right, but you know, he's not Chris Peterson. I think that's become pretty evident over the past couple of years. They still hey, Josh, does your does your third period know that word gravitas? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, someone who is quickly accumulating a lot of gravitas in the coaching world, Lincoln Riley. Uh, they had he had himself uh, the biggest coaching win of his young head coaching career in the horseshoe this weekend when his Oklahoma Sooners. Uh, traveled up from Norman to Columbus to put a good old fashioned butt whooping on the Buckeyes 31 to 16. 
you know, we all picked Ohio State in this game. So, Josh, uh, you know, this part, part of the, the big difference in this game was sort of a tale of two quarterbacks. Uh, Baker Mayfield had a great game, 386 yards, three touchdowns, uh, 27 to 35 passing. On the other hand, JT Barrett, 19 to 35, 183 yards, no touchdown, one pick. And he's now one for 20 on the season on passes thrown more than 20 yards downfield. Uh, so was this game, uh, did this tell you more about Mayfield or about Barrett? It actually told me more about just Ohio State as a current makeup of a team. And being a Big Ten blogger, I'll, I'll stick with that. I mean, this is a team that it's now two years. They've struggled with big play potential. Um, you know, last year they scored just 30 points requiring overtime at Wisconsin, uh, were held to 21 by Penn State, scored only 24 in a narrow win against Northwestern, scored only 17 in a narrow win against Michigan State, got to 30, needing double overtime against Michigan, and then we know what happened in the playoffs last year. Playoffs? <laughs> I was pausing just for that. Thank you, Coach. 31 nothing against Clemson. Uh, so this is now spilling over from last year into camp. Hired new offensive staff. They're going to get it fixed. And uh, I love JT Barrett. I think he's a fantastic talent. I would love him on the Hawkeyes. He's so dangerous with his feet. And the arm strength is there. But it's just the timing's not right. Uh there were reports in the offseason that they were tinkering with his motion to improve his passing. That's not good for someone this late in their college career. The Ohio State receivers just are not scary. I mean, you think about some of the talent they've had to go through there. Like, Ted Ginn was, like, the fastest person I've ever seen. They don't really have that in their receiving core anymore. They're not a deep threat, and that's letting safeties creep up. That's letting... Teams rush the passer without really concerns of getting burned. It's bogging down everything. And even in the running game, I know 167 yards on 34 carries sounds really good, but it was kind of herky-jerky for them to get there. It didn't feel like they got those yards in a good flow. It just seemed like they kind of accumulated them without having a greater offensive purpose. And until JT Barrett and the receiving core – can figure out a way to scare you deep. What Oklahoma did is going to become the norm. Yeah, Coach, I know you you are someone who's always touted Lincoln Riley here, so you've got to be very impressed with this one. I absolutely am. And, uh, you know, for, uh, for someone that, you know, just actually exploded on the scene, you know, he, he, is, he is my age. Lincoln Riley and I are the same age, so I kind of have that, you know, kind of admiration for him because man just I, I wonder what I could be if I was there if I was in his shoes right now you know I'm, I'm an offensive coordinator in high school and he is leading one of the most storied storied uh, programs in college football and what he's done since he took over is you know to think that you know somebody that young somebody that early in his tenure that early in his head coaching career would go to a place like the horseshoe and not only win, but have a, you know, have your quarterback maybe put a stamp on the Heisman, which 
as a separate issue. I, I don't I don't know that Baker Mayfield's necessarily going to win the Heisman based on this game, but I think Lamar Jackson's going to have something about to, to say about that again this year. Yeah, and deservedly so. I mean, Lamar Jackson's been killing it this year, so um, it's going to be a good good Heisman race, but. You know, I, I think with all the drama that Oklahoma's gone through, Bob Stoops and, you know, some of the trouble that they've gotten into and things like that, I, I think things are starting to get a little too hot and Bob Stoops just stepped away. And, you know, Lincoln Riley is not only not only taking the torch, but he is sprinted with it like he's Usain Bolt. And, you know, it's a story of a guy that's taking advantage of his opportunity. And, you know, it's real easy to root for guys like that. And you may not like everybody on Oklahoma's team, and that's okay. And you may not kind of like how they've done things in the past. And, you know, I, I've, I've been kind of up and down on, on them. I was I was high on them early on in Stoops', Stoops tenure, and I've been kind of down on them lately. And, you know, in, in different spots I would root for them and things like that. But, you know, I just think it's, you know, just the way – just the way that he's mixing things up, just the way that he seems to be tapping into Baker Mayfield's strengths and the strengths of his team is just nothing short but amazing. And it all came together at Ohio State. Yeah, I was I was torn in this game because I love seeing Ohio State lose, but I also really do not care for Oklahoma <laughs> at all. So, well, I'll tell you one thing I'm worried about, though, for Ohio State and – Coach, you'd probably know this comparison way better than Matt and I would. But Ohio State feels a little bit like LSU with less miles right now, where their defense has out-of-this-world potential, but that offense just feels like it's going to let them down. But they were supposed to, you know, they brought in, um, you know, Kevin Wilson, who was supposed to be, you know, the witch doctor who fixed everything. Well, he ain't fixing this so far. Well, here, here's the problem. Here's here's the growing pains that they're going through with the, with the new offensive coordinator. A lot of stuff that they're doing is great, but they just don't have the right people right now. You know, they're built more for an option, take a shot here and there, uh, nickel and dime you type passing system, which made them successful. And they've they've kind of I felt like they're getting further and further away from what made Urban Meyer Urban Meyer offensively. And I think if they they just need to – I just don't think they're utilizing their guys in the right way. Um, you don't have any true deep threats. And that's okay. You just got to play to that. And I, I, I think sometimes you see them square peg, round hole situation, a lot of stuff, and, you know, try to force something that's not there and try to make JT Barrett into this – pocket passer that's going to stand back there and pick your part. That's not what he is. You know, he's a good option quarterback that can move the pocket and, and throw. And he throws, and he's accurate on the run. He's accurate when he, he throws on the run. he's too. accurate on the run. And, and he's, he's good at that. But when but he's, he's not good, it's, he's not good at standing back there, scanning a defense, and making the right throw, which that's okay. You don't, you know, that's not your strength. Play to it. You know, Cam Newton's not good at that either, but he makes it. He's made a hell of a career in the NFL based on based on people doing what's right by Cam Newton and, you and know, what, what Cam Newton's good at. And Corey, you know as well as anyone, no matter how great your scheme is, you always got to adapt the scheme to the players that you got. Yeah, I mean, I, I've had to. I've had. There's a lot of. There's a lot of things that I've had to, you know, 
in my first in my first year as a rookie offensive coordinator, there's been a lot of things that I've had to kind of kind of give up on and concede that hey, we're just not good at this right now. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I want to do that we can't do, and I, I've I've got to be okay with that. And that's part of being flexible. You have to be okay with playing to the strength of your team and putting your own personal preferences on the shelf. And I just don't think they're doing that because we're Ohio State. We can get whoever we want to. Well, that's all fine and dandy, but you don't have a deep threat. Why keep trying to act like you do? You got some that are possibly coming in, but you don't have them yet because you're still in high school. So do what you do best. Urban Meyer, do what you do best. Yeah, you'd like to see their – I'd also like to see their running game become a little bit more varied. I feel like they're getting, you know, I, I feel like they're running the same six plays out of different formations, but it's still the same six plays over and over again. Well, there's, I just feel like they're getting further, further away from option. And they're getting to stuff that, you know, I, I think they're trying to be too versatile and, you know, just stuff that they haven't, I don't know. It's, it's tough to explain, but, you know, you're Urban Meyer. You, you know what made you Urban Meyer? The stuff you did with Tebow. Stuff you did with Alex get, Smith. Stuff you did with Alex Smith. The stuff you, you know. Heck, going all the way Alex, going back to his Bowling Green days. I mean. You made Alex Smith the first overall pick. What are you, what are you doing? Why aren't you along those same lines? You know, Why? What, what, what's, what's going on? Why, why do you feel that you have to constantly change? You know, you should be at a point where you're just tweaking here and there. And, and they're not. I don't get it. I don't get it either. Well, we got to keep moving on they, to one of the other marquee matchups of the weekend. And that was a defensive struggle uh, between the Tigers and the Tigers in Death Valley. Auburn went into Clemson. Uh, thinking that Jared Stidham would look pretty good in their first outing. But, man, that Clemson defense, Brett Venables again and again proving that he uh, might be the best defensive coordinator in all of college football. They held Auburn to a total of 117 yards. Total combined. 79 passing, 38 rushing. Uh, Auburn even had the time of possession advantage in this game by about five minutes and yet could only – you know, muster six points, uh, just an absolutely dominant performance by Clemson's defense. Um, and Kelly Bryant, you know, didn't throw any touchdowns in this game, but also didn't make any mistakes. Looked very, very solid throughout the game. Uh, so, Josh, what stood out to you in the most of this one? Yeah, I mean, that, that Clemson offensive, or that Clemson defensive line, excuse me, just ate up Auburn and I know we said that Auburn's offensive line was their biggest weakness, but you sort of assume, I mean, they're a nationally ranked Auburn team. There's different shades of it being a weakness. I mean, they, they got totally, oh, man. I mean, Stidham ended with negative 42 rushing yards because of about 35 sacks. Um, I mean, just yeah, 11 sacks, had 11 14 sacks. TFL. I mean, that's amazing. That's that's just out of this world. And even with the notion that Auburn's weakness was their offensive line, that's still way more than I ever would have assumed. 
you know, great, great performance by Clemson's defense. But if you're Auburn, there's still, believe it or not, some positives to take away from this. They, you know, their defense held in there. Their defense outside of uh, Kelly Bryant uh, rushing 59 yards on 19 carries and two scores. Outside of that, Clemson's running attack was a non-factor, held the defending champs to 14 points. This was a great game, the complete opposite of the Iowa-Iowa State game. There's a lot of positives for both teams to take away, and I'm really curious if the lessons Auburn learned in this make them more of a factor in the West than originally anticipated. What do you think about that, Coach? I, I think it's exactly right. I mean, you know, the key to the key to competing in the SEC is defense, and and Auburn played plenty of it. I mean, to to hold such a high flying offense to 14 points is amazing in and of itself. And a lot of people are saying, "Oh, Gus Miles on this, Gus Miles on that, fire Gus Miles on." He's going to be gone. He's going to be gone. He's going to be gone. Yeah, okay, they didn't play the greatest game ever on offense, but, you know, he, last I checked, he's not the offense coordinator. He's the head coach, and he's responsible for it all. And what he did defensively or what, you know, what they did, Auburn did defensively was I, I thought they played an extremely strong game. And, you know, it's it's like it's like people want to go and, you know, oh, well, there's no offense, so this must have been a boring game. But – you know, it's like that one nothing pitcher's duel in baseball. You know, when you have Clayton Kershaw and Justin Verlander going in his prime, and they're just both dueling it out. That's fun. You know, sometimes you just need defense. You just need people flying around and making plays. And, and that that's exciting to watch, too. And it seemed like every – I don't feel like Auburn won. I know, they, I know they did win the time of possession, but it didn't feel like it. Because every time I flipped over there, Clemson had the ball right around midfield every single time I flipped over there. So either the game, either that one clip was in uh, a never ending loop or that just kind of how, how I just happened to flip over and they had the ball in midfield. But, um, you know, I, I was thoroughly impressed with um, the defenses, but, you know, you have two new quarterbacks going for, for both teams and you have a lot of good new moving parts, and, you know, it's, that's to be expected, especially in, in a game this early in the season against two good, solid defenses. So, um, you know, they got a lot to work on. That's, that's, that's a fact. But, again, they'll be fine. Both teams will be fine. Stidham will have a big year. Brian will have a big year. Um, but these defenses are what's going what's gonna to have them contend. I think, I think Clemson's a playoff favorite because of their defense. I think Auburn – is a favorite to be a sleeper in the West because of their defense, and they will do they will do enough on offense to to make that true. Coach, I think I'm going to have to adopt that term: a favorite to be a sleeper. Did I say that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Favorite to be the sleeper. Mm-hmm. I like that. I, I'm I'm taking that from here. I, I got a quick shout out to Clemson defensive end Austin Bryant, who accounted for four of those eleven sacks. Uh, yeah. Four sacks in a game is pretty remarkable. Um, you know, that does not happen that often. So uh, kudos to him and the rest of that defensive line, Christian Wilkins and the gang. Christian Wilkins from the defensive tackle spot had 10 tackles, two sacks, two and a half tackles for loss. I mean, come on. 
that's just that that's absolutely fantastic play. So, um, but they are obviously going to be tested this week when they take on Louisville. But that will be for our second pod this week when we preview that game. For now, let's look. Let's go to our penultimate uh, breakdown of the week, where Stanford, who we all really like, uh, went down to USC and got uh, clobbered, quite frankly, by USC. Uh, Sam Darnold came alive. 316 yards and four scores. And the rushing attack from USC, though, is what really stands out to me in this case. Um, we all know about Ronald Jones. Uh, he had a, you know, he's been a very productive back for a while there um, in, uh, at USC. But freshman Stephen Carr, he had himself a game. 11 carries, 119 yards. Uh, he looked really, broke off a big 52 yarder. He looked really solid. They ran for over 300 yards as a team. Uh, so, Josh, what's happened to our uh, vaunted Cardinals? They got out Stanford. That rushing attack just bruised them up and, and wore them down and chewed them up and spit them out. And it just, you know, the, the game got away from them and they couldn't do their usual what they want to do, which is wear you down. They ended up only having 26 carries. I mean, they want to run the ball. They had more passes than, than rushes, and a lot of that was because they were down, trailing in the game. So that's all on USC. That's what happened to Stanford. And for SC, it's, it's getting back to their identity. And, Matt, you and I have had this discussion repeatedly. I think Carson Palmer's a super overrated quarterback. I don't think he's had a very good NFL career. I think he compiles a lot of numbers. Uh, what he did in the opening week sort of supports me with a four interception. He's like 39 years old at this point. Yeah, he sucks. Uh, the other USC quarterbacks have a butt fumble, uh, flame out on their career. Uh, Matt Leiner is like doing pool parties or something in the Pac-12 network. I don't know what he's doing, but he's on an NFL roster. What is my point? The point is Sam Darnold's awesome, but USC – had flash and thunder. When I think of SC, I think of Wendell White bruising you and then Reggie just scat backing all over your face. And that's what <laughs> USC has again. USC has these like, incredible weekend. <laughs> USC has these incredible versatile running backs again and it was impressive to see. Josh, I'm going to use that later. <laughs> Scat backing all over your face. <laughs> oh, I feel dirty. Um, you might have to put the explicit rating on this pod. Do you have a beep ready? Um, just running in constant loop. Um, no, I mean, I, I guess for at least a week, we can say Sam Darnold shut us all up. I mean, Matt, you and I were talking about how how upsetting it was that Sam Darnold receiving all this all this praise and attention because he had a good second half of the year and a good bowl game and Lamar Jackson is not uh, a first team All American quarterback and he's been nothing short of amazing lighting the world on fire and you know breaking records left and right and you know Lamar Jackson even though he plays for probably one of the most despicable head coaches in college football is actually one of my favorite players in college football I love watching him play. It's so much fun watching him play, and that's the reason. That's one of the reasons why I wasn't watching a whole lot of the Iowa games is because I was watching, you know, I was watching Louisville and North Carolina, and I was watching the Badgers. 
you know, I was watching, and then I flipped into the Iowa game, and then well, went and got me a new sofa that's going to be delivered on Friday, and uh, so my mom was in town, and everything. So we were we were just kind of doing that all morning, and so, but uh, I mean, again, you you said it perfectly. USC out Stanford, out Stanforded Stanford, and they just crammed it down their throat and Sam Darnold did his thing and it was it was a very masterful game of, of, from a team that overachieved against a team that quite frankly came in overpromised and underproduced and uh, you know every, everyone in the world was like well Stanford's going to come in here and, and in this pipe dream of USC going to the playoffs and USC said you know what for at least another week nah we're going to beat you we're going to beat you my th- my biggest complaint on on this uh, for for Stanford is why did Bryce Love only get 17 carries? He had 116 160 yards on 17 carries, nearly 10 a pop. And you know he, he has shown that he can be a game breaker. He busted out a 75 yard touchdown in this game. I mean, why why he was not being fed the rock more and more? Uh, USC won the. Uh, the time of possession battle by almost 10 minutes. I mean, it was, I mean, Josh, like you said, USC out Stanford, Stanford. And that is uh, something that, you know, we have not seen a lot in recent years. So a little bit back to the drawing board for David Shaw and the rest of the gang, but we need to get on to our final breakdown of the uh, weekend. And that is the game I was over at your house watching with you coach, um, your Georgia Bulldogs pulling uh, pulling a victory straight out of their rear ends um, in South Bend. Uh, Jake Fromm had some early game jitters, settled down a little bit, but uh, I, I want to know sort of what your overall thoughts here on this game were, Coach. Well, I mean, I, I thought defensively, I, I don't think we, you know, I think as sloppy as it kind of was, this was probably one of the best games that George, one of the most clutch games that Georgia's ever played. I mean, you had big play after big play after big play, seemingly after uh, moments where it seemed like we wanted to give the game to Notre Dame. And, you know, just to just to say Lorenzo Carter and David Bellamy came up huge for, for the Bulldogs would be a massive understatement. You know, you had Matt, you had big sack after big sack. Uh, for those two guys, and uh, you know, just in key moments, just in just in critical moments where you just needed, you just needed Lorenzo Carter to beat that tackle, to beat that really good, talented offensive tackle off the line, and go make a sack. He would go get it for you. You know, same with Ben and Bellamy. At the end of the game, they pick up that they pick up that first down, and and, what, what, and most teams would start to get gain momentum. And drive down and kick the game in field goal. Well, Gavin Bellville had nothing of it. Um, I just think, you know, the biggest difference in this game was the speed up front, especially with Georgia's defensive line. I mean, you know, that, that's kind of what, what beat, that's kind of what overcame, well, that's kind of what overwhelmed Notre Dame was the fact that they just couldn't handle the speed of not only the defensive ends, you know, because there's a lot of defensive ends around the country that are fast. It was the interior guys that they couldn't handle. And, you know, they had to double-team those guys and they had to shift protection to protect from the inside. And then that allowed one-on-one matchups with with the ends. And if you're going one-on-one with those two, it's very 
we're not going to win. And Roquan Smith, again, just proved that he's going to be probably, he's going to be Georgia's version of Zach Cunningham. And, I mean, that guy is, that guy's amazing, you know. And, and uh, you know, Georgia's defense was, was amazing. Uh, they came up huge. They knew they had to with the freshman quarterback going with, with an offense that just struggles up front, struggles to get two, two of the best running backs in college football going on a consistent basis. You know, it, it, it was it was one of those things where you needed it and it came through. Um, a couple observations I had, I've never seen face mask penalties just dramatically outweigh uh, holding and pass interference combined. You take all the holding penalties, all the pass interference penalties, you combine them, I don't think they come close to as many face masks that were being called. And all those face masks were earned. Uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, they were all earned, but I've never seen anything like it. Um, and then on the flip side, SEC refs are so bad. They didn't call. I don't feel like they called a single pass interference all night. And when they did, it was it was a it was a grazing of the back of the jersey. And then they let they let receivers get tackled all night on both sides of the ball. They wouldn't call it. And then they called the most ticky tack pass interference. That frustrated me a little bit. Um, Jake Fromm played like a freshman against a really good, against a really good and talented defense, which was to be expected. He played like a freshman. Uh, did not take care of the ball as well as well as Kirby Smart wanted, but he played well enough to win. Uh, you know, Nico Hardman was was a was a factor in the return game. Uh, that was that was a huge part of it. Uh, he was a factor in punt coverage. Punt coverage was phenomenal all night long. Uh, and um, you know, the receivers made some big plays. Sony Michelle ripped off some big runs. It just seemed like. Everything they did was clutch that night. When you need it, that's when you got it. And, and that, that's kind of the difference in the game. When, when, when Georgia needed it, they got it. And they just overwhelmed with their speed on the interior. Well, Josh, let's look at this on the flip side from Notre Dame's angle. Uh, do we need to get the uh, Brian Kelly firing countdown clock started? Uh, yeah, I mean, the off-the-field stuff, uh, you know, players suing for – allegedly withholding an MRI. Uh, so like another uh, co-ed was, uh, was suing the school because of some uh, potential uh, sexual abuse or harassment or something. Uh, details on that are still ongoing. So two more bad things under a watch that already includes a resume of a kid dying. Uh, so that's not good for, for, Coach Kelly, but the other thing too is, uh, you know, I, I sometimes I hit the hit a prediction dead on, and I said Georgia was just going to load up the box and shut down that running game and, and make Wimbush beat them. And sure as snow, right as rain, that's what Georgia did. They they held the the Irish to just fifty five rushing yards on thirty seven carries. A uh, very talented back, Josh Adams, had just fifty three yards on nineteen carries. Their longest rush yard, longest run of the day, day was eight yards. That's it. The blueprint is there. Uh, Brandon Wimbush, he's got a lot of upside, but he's not there yet to beat you with his arm. Expect a lot of teams to do this to Notre Dame. Expect some of the losses to start mounting because Notre Dame being an independent always schedules tough, and 
there's some really good defense and defenses in the ACC that they have to face. Yeah, I mean, I was watching this game with with, with Coach, and the guy on, on defense for Georgia, besides Roquan Smith, who stood out to me, was a guy you already mentioned, uh, Lorenzo Carter. Uh, he just seemed to be everywhere. I know he only totaled seven tackles, but it felt like he had about 27. Uh, well, you know, he had a million and a half quarterback hurries, which which is a huge factor in why Wimbush was inaccurate. And he had two fumble recoveries uh, to go along with a with, with a sack as well. So he he was doing it all for that defense, and that's a, that's a really good sign for Georgia because that defense is going to be able to keep, uh, keep them in every game that they play this year. Notre Dame's next two games, by the way, are both road games at BC and at Michigan State. Both teams have really really good defenses. Uh, wouldn't be surprising to see the Irish drop one of those games. Outside chance they lose both. I mean, I, I think a, a BC-Notre Dame game would be the game that I would most want both teams to lose. <laughs> uh, Matt wants Boston to, like, fall into the ocean or something no no I, I don't I, I don't want that i i have yes you do as long as as long as cheers stays dry you're fine no i'm i'm really just looking for chestnut hill to fall into the ocean the rest of boston I'm, I'm, I'm fine with the rest of boston i'm southy sounds good to me <laughs> so um well are there any final thoughts here uh, on the weekend for you josh yeah, I'm just uh, extremely disappointed we didn't have time to break down uh, the first win for Butch Davis at Florida International. <laughs> Coach, any final thoughts from you? <laughs> After that, Jim, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, I just want to know why kicking is so bad. Uh, you know, it's it's become a lost art. You know, I, I see – Arkansas missed two chip shot field goals. I see Hot Rod Rodrigo Blankenship miss miss a uncharacteristically miss a miss a short kick. I see missed extra points. I see you know barely made extra points. I mean, why is kicking become so bad when you know it used to be so automatic? It felt like you know you go out there and and, and you get it unless you were Florida State's kicker against Miami. And you knew it was going wide right, but um, you know how, you know, I don't get it. That that's a that's a mystery to me, you know. But I guess that's a mystery we can solve another day. Well, I, I'm I'm going to end today on a little bit of a uh, I, I want to tip I want to tip my hat to my alma mater for uh, a couple different reasons uh, on the field. Uh, true freshman Jonathan Taylor, uh, 223 oh, yards, uh, three touchdowns. In his first start, uh, that that kid is special. But uh, uh, but it, at large, though, to the University of Wisconsin football program, Florida Atlantic, obviously, with everything that's gone on with Hurricane Irma, uh, you know, they came up and played in Camp Randall, you know, while the hurricane was battering Miami. So obviously, you know, they were playing with a lot on their minds. But the University of Wisconsin has opened their doors to uh, the entire football program, and they are staying in Madison through Wednesday. Um, they are practicing with UW. They are practicing there. They've been given access to all of the training rooms and study lounges and all those things. And so it's really nice in, you know, 
even as someone as despicable as Lane Kiffin deserves to have some good things happen to him. And it's really nice to see that, um, you know, in this trying time, there are still, you know, people looking out for the good of their fellow man. So uh, kudos to you, Badgers. Uh, It makes me proud to be an alumnus. And on that fine note, uh, we are going to end up and wrap up uh, today's week two recap of the 2017 season. So on behalf of the coach here in Nashville, Tennessee, and our intrepid blogger from Big Ten Accounting, Josh Cook in Chicago, Illinois, uh, this is the professor in Nashville saying so long and see you next time on the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. Mr. Cook's third period, you better behave yourself. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. To get in touch with the show, email us at illegalmotionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at illegal underscore motion. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.